This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. All right, welcome back to Almost Heretical. We teased this show in this series last week by doing this kind of like fake episode thing that was only 15 minutes long. And if you look, it was actually exactly 15 minutes long. You're welcome. Uh, it took me a couple minutes to get it to exactly 15 minutes, and I'm really happy about that. But we teased this, uh, this show that we want to do and this series that we want to do. And so this is that series, You're in the Right Place. If you didn't listen to that last one, you pr- probably don't need to. It's probably fine if you just start here. So we're going to be talking about gender and gender roles and the Bible and Paul and all this stuff because we think it's really, really important. And I just wanted to say right off the top before we get into this, for those of you who uh, are going to agree with what we're saying and already kind of think this direction, I just really hope this is refreshing and encouraging for you to hear because I know there are a lot of voices out there that are using the Bible to say the opposite of this and it gets tiring, it gets frustrating, it gets it just kind of starts to wear on you after a while. So I hope this is encouraging and refreshing for you and, and helps to give the Bible back to you. And for those of you who are not here and are, are kind of where we are coming from and the direction we used to teach and lead the church in, I just hope that you can come to this with an open mind and an open heart and be willing to have your mind and your heart stretched and, and maybe see things that you didn't see before. So now let's start the series. And Tim, I'm going to ask you, what are we talking about and where are we going? Yeah, so I think the way we're going to organize this is uh, there are basically six key passages specifically related to gender that kind of fuel the debate over women and how gender is treated in the New Testament. We're going to treat those one at a time and do six uh, episodes, one on each uh, of those passages, and look at uh, options for interpretation. But before we do that, right now, we're going to spend an episode kind of bigger picture, zoom back, look at some big picture ways of approaching the New Testament and big picture ideas that should be dominating interpretation and often aren't dominating it. Hmm. And specifically, the biggest one I want to talk about is how one of the hermeneutical guidelines. So like hermeneutical, that just means like kind of how you read the Bible and like what decisions you make in interpretation as you read, right? Right. Yeah. And and part of the case we'll make here is that uh, so much of this debate has hinged on basically some egregious hermeneutical decisions and methodology that some of the people out there teaching and, and doing Bible scholarship and promoting ideas are some of the strongest <laughs> proponents for like good hermeneutics, and yet they're breaking many of their own rules when they go to interpret passages on women. So one of those that I want to focus on right now is uh, consistency and kind of like dealing with contradiction. So basically, there's a general hermeneutical principle that first, you should interpret the tricky, questionable texts, ones that everybody's kind of sitting around a room scratching their head going, what does this mean? You should interpret those passages by the plainer, more obvious, more more plain sense passages, right? And whatever you know for certain, especially like within Paul's writing, right? Whatever you know Paul definitely thinks over here in Romans should should help influence how you think Paul is thinking somewhere else like in 1 Timothy. And on top of that, the broader texts, texts that are more general and generic, where someone like Paul is giving a a more kind of zoomed out, broad brushstroke theology, should have priority over how we interpret really 
contextualized, highly specific, highly uh, case-specific particular texts like the letter to First Timothy. So one thing we'll just point out now, and we'll get into the details later, is that the way gender has been treated is the exact opposite has been done. And basically the biggest ideas of Paul's theology and some of the primary foundations and basics of Christian theology that Paul's working out everywhere in his epistles have been basically eliminated and ignored based on how people have interpreted the letter of first Timothy and where it seems like Paul is telling women that they should be in positions of submission even though it's highly debated, what has largely happened is people have have taken that interpretation and then filtered the entire rest of the New Testament through that interpretation. And so what I want to spend this episode on doing is showing how Paul has a consistent theology of power that's based on the foundational ethic of Christian relinquishing of power and self-sacrifice that before we get into any of the specific texts, we can just think big picture about gender and see that the complementarian view that there is a, a, a natural God-ordained difference in the authority of men and women simply is inconsistent and contradicting to the entire rest of Paul's theology. Okay, so you're saying that in places like Romans, which is maybe more like true to what Paul actually thinks and is like his deeper, stronger, better argument for everything he thinks— you're saying we need to use that to then go and interpret something like first and second Timothy or whatever, and we'll be able to understand those couple verses that are used to kind of build this whole case basically against women in leadership. We'll be able to understand those in light of what Paul actually meant, right? Yeah, exactly. And okay. well, first to remind everybody, there's a ton of scholarship out there, probably lots of stuff you had have read, can read on both egalitarian complement and complementarian sides of this whole debate. Uh, but what I think is the best book in biblical scholarship out there is Paul and Gender by Cynthia Long Westfall. And so uh, a lot of the stuff we'll be doing is either directly or indirectly coming from her work or is an idea that she has already uh, dealt with. Uh, so for the more in-depth detail stuff, uh, go read her book. And I just want to give her all the credit that is due. So one of her points is she makes actually the Romans first Timothy comparison. She says Romans is explicitly, Paul writes, written to a church that he does not know. He has not been to Rome. He does not know these people individually. And it's the longest of Paul's epistles. There's a reason why Romans is treated as kind of like the magnum opus in Paul's writings. It's because it's the most generic. He doesn't know uh, all these nitty gritty intimate details of what the specific arguments and debates and issues going on were. He knows some, uh, but only from hearsay, basically. And so what you get in Romans feels the most like Paul sitting down and writing theology for theology's sake, right? Whereas in the letters to Timothy, he specifically told Timothy, I need you to stay in Ephesus because in Ephesus, there's this particular issue going on of false teachings, which have something to do with like myths and wives tales, potentially related to like weird versions of a creation story circulating among predominantly the women in the church. And so I need you to stay in Ephesus and deal with that particular issue. And then they have private correspondence going back and forth talking about how to address that particular issue 
And we're just reading Paul's side of that mail and probably not only all of his correspondence. Okay, so it's like the difference between like reading someone's sermon and reading one side of someone's email to a guy. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So what I want to do is jump even further back, not even just look at Romans, but look at what anybody in Paul's day, if they had either had a copy of the Gospels or just heard oral circulation of the Gospels and the story of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, what anyone in, in Paul's day, including Paul and Peter and the apostles, interpreted as the the basic foundation of what it meant to be the church and to follow Jesus and explore what that is, basically, and see that Paul everywhere is working this idea out, this this basic building block of Christianity, which all has to do with power and status, and that you can see in everything he's doing that he's working out this ethic within the church, and that that ethic is the opposite of the complementarian view of gender differentiation between men and women. So big picture, before we even get into like just Romans versus Timothy, I just want to look at Paul's theology of power, see where he got it, and and basically give like a little snapshot of how the epistles are actually working out a theology of power that simply doesn't allow for the complementarian view of women. All right, let's do it. Okay, so Nate, your job is to keep this short and tight. I have hundreds of pages of notes on this stuff. It's something I've wanted to write on and something I'm super passionate about. So trying to, to summarize the New Testament and power. And if you guys want more in-depth notes, feel free to email us. But you remember the line where Jesus says, it's in all the synoptic gospels, but you basically have a slightly different story. In Mark, James and John come up to Jesus and they start asking him about who's going to have status basically, in Jesus's kingdom. Similar story is told in Matthew, but in Matthew, it's actually their mom. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember? Comes to Jesus and starts like petitioning on behalf of her sons to be like highest, you know, highest ranking in Jesus's uh, group. Basically, the idea is Jesus is going to inherit the kingdom and they're fighting for status within that kingdom. And then it's also told in Luke. And Jesus's response is, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that basic idea gets repeated at least twice in each of the synoptic gospels and actually a third time in Matthew where uh, in Matthew, there's the extra scene too, where Jesus brings the little kid to him and holds up a child, right? Like as this scene that he's making and says, like children are the, are the bottom of the totem pole. They have basically zero status in adult world. Whoever wants to be the greatest must descend the social hierarchy to become like one of these children. So he just uses another example. Instead of slave, he uses another example of a member of the the lower status in society, and he, he literally grabs a child to make that point. Uh, but then the, the whole idea of the greatest becoming the servant gets repeated a second time in each one of the synoptic gospels. And Luke, this story is happening at the Last Supper, at Passover, right before Jesus dies. It's, it is the foundational ethical teaching 
for how the people are actually supposed to live when Jesus is gone. And then Luke adds this other story that is getting at Jesus's reversal of uh, what we'll talk about in a little bit is is the Greco-Roman patronage system, which was basically how social status and, and social hierarchy was organized. Uh, because they're at a table at dinner, and it says, when he noticed how the guests, who are his disciples, picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Yeah, so this like this seems like Jesus 101, right? Like, are the last is first, the, the least are lifted up, like, the way you move up in the kingdom is by moving down. Like, that just seems like pretty standard, like, Jesus 101. Are you saying, like, Paul also believes this? <laughs> yes, exactly. So there's some other pieces of Jesus' explicit teaching uh, that are worth mentioning real quick, and then we'll jump into Paul. The first is that this idea... So where Jesus right there says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's a theme in the Old Testament, that what God was doing and trying to do throughout the world, throughout history, was to level the playing field, to create equity and justice by cutting down the powerful and exalting those who have been disempowered and weak, often called the humble or the, the gentle. That's what the Beatitudes are. You know, when Jesus stands there and says, blessed are these people, blessed are these people, blessed are these people, the the point is that this great leveling of the playing field, the exaltation of those who have not been exalted within the culture, within the world, that God's work of lifting those people up to positions of status is actually happening here now around Jesus. And if you remember, there's a section where, where Jesus actually, in Matthew, explicitly forbids there even being roles that have anything to do with hierarchical status differentiation amongst his disciples. He says, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and do not call anyone on earth father for you have one father and he is in heaven, nor are you to be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Messiah, the greatest among you will be your servant. There it is again. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
once again, Jesus is affirming this Old Testament idea that God is trying to level the playing field by turning the social hierarchy upside down. And the, the way that gets enacted is the greatest among you is to be like a servant or slave of all. But here, literally, he forbids the way this is supposed to be manifested practically in the structure of Jesus' disciples, which is going to be the church, is that no one should have the title of teacher or father or instructor, which like literally just like this could be a, a sidebar for a couple hours. The fact that we have a pope, pope just means father, papa, and the main, the main role within evangelical Protestant churches is the lead pastor or head pastor, which basically is this like, you know, uttermost, topmost teacher, like means that, that we have ignored this very explicit command from Jesus pretty much throughout church history. So to Paul, ironically, here's like the ironic status of where we're at. What we'll look at is most of the passages actually... Basically, all of the passages in Paul referencing gender and specifically referencing submission that have been interpreted in a way as to suggest that women are supposed to submit and men are supposed to have power. Actually, ironically, are passages where Paul is saying the exact opposite thing. But the only reason we've been able to misinterpret it that badly is we've ignored all of these very clear, plain and simple commandments from Jesus to what the church is supposed to look like. And that's step one of what I'm saying is this is really plain, right? Jesus right here is saying there's not to be any hierarchy and there's not to be any differentiation in roles within the church. That's why he says, because you are all brothers. No, there shouldn't be one teacher or one rabbi or one father, you know, some like patriarch of the community. Why? Because you are all equal playing field brothers. So there is to be no hierarchy. There's to be no role differentiation. So if we just fast forward, how in the world could we think that Paul's ethics when it relates to men and women is that there is supposed to be a hierarchy, a hierarchical differentiation between male and female roles in the community? Right. And I don't, I don't know if like this is where we want to go with this, but like I think someone would say like, but someone's got to lead the thing, right? Like someone's got to lead. What, is, what would a group of people look like if no one was leading it? Yeah, I kind of want to go there. I kind of don't. Uh, I get that argument. I've been in those arguments. I've been on both sides <laughs> of that argument. Uh, I just come to a place where like, basically no one's ever tried it. Right. Or some people have. Right. Uh, but it reminds me of that group that you led at like at your house, like where that was, that's what you were focused on was like trying to have a group of people where like you weren't leading the thing. No one was really leading. It was just like, everyone, this is us. We're doing this thing together. Let's do it. You yeah. Know? Uh, it's like weird. It's like hard to even talk about almost. The year before, uh, actually, as I was being fired and uh, pushed out of the church, I uh, I started this kind of experimental community, sort of like discipleship learning cohort with some really cool people at our church. And it was partly an experiment in terms of you know how to serve a group of people and like build some cool community. But it was also a half an experiment for myself who was clearly... Uh, had the most power in that group. I was the one who's like church staff, you know, with the minister title, that sort of thing. I was the one who had arranged the group. Um, I could have leveraged all sorts of spiritual authority within it. And it basically, I think we met every other week. And uh, from the get-go, uh, I had been reflecting on on this Christian ethic of power and watching how it played out in church and in my own life. And so I wanted to spend a year 
uh, we only got about five or six months together since <laughs> I was eliminated from that world. But uh, we basically, what I wanted to do was was experiment in constantly giving away or refusing to hold any bit of that sort of spiritual power uh, amongst that community and trying to do that in different ways and different exercises and all that. But it basically revealed to me a few things. One, it was completely possible and actually incredibly fun. And it took so much of the pressure of like performance anxiety and like all the pressure around preparation and like how to get ready for a Bible, you know, whatever that kind of stuff is off. And then we were able to disperse that basically where everybody took turns kind of taking leadership roles. It also elevated people's voices who probably would have been drowned out by my voice and and others who basically often white males feel more confidence and power and like they should be talking more. But the last thing is, is it really revealed in me how much of a temptation it was every single time we got together to put myself in this position of of like the teacher guy the authoritative guy the one that people kind of look to as the spiritual guru or whatever yeah and I could feel it every single time even though I had created the group to resist that temptation like it was the experiment to resist it it also basically revealed how strong that temptation was right and so I'm just like, this would never happen naturally. Never. Like what happens naturally is people get power. And if your version of religion, Christianity or otherwise, is not explicitly subversive to that ascent to power, to hierarchy itself, like if your Christianity isn't anti-hierarchical, you will just naturally default to climbing the ladder. Yeah. Like you will you will use whatever gifts, skills, talents, energy you have to like persistently subtly climb the social ladder. That's why Jesus commands that what you have to do is not just not climb the ladder, not just not lord over others like the Gentile rulers do. It's like climb down the ladder. Exactly. You have to race to the bottom. Yeah. So the church is supposed to be the community of people in the world where everybody is racing in the opposite direction as the culture to become like slaves rather than to become like rulers and leaders and people in charge. And I know, and like the first thought is, well, that wouldn't really work. Like that wouldn't, that would look weird and it would kind of be this strange thing that wouldn't actually work and it might not even hold together and all that. but like that it was supposed to look weird like it was supposed to be countercultural. it was supposed to be this strange thing that like people looked on and saw <laughs> this group of people living this way that's so counter how we actually are as humans and how we actually set up companies and systems and this whole thing so yeah so we are uh we have 60 seconds left to me so what what do we need to say before we Jump into the next episode. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Give me, uh, no, I need, give me, because uh, you'll edit a couple, what, two minutes out? Maybe. I don't know. We've been pretty good this episode. I don't think there's a lot to edit out. Give me three minutes, Nate, instead of 60 seconds. Uh, two and a half. Okay, so to wrap this thing up real quick, my point is first, that this is the basics of Christian theology, and second, that Paul and Peter and the apostles were very clear and understood very well that this was basics of Christian theology. And consistently throughout the epistles in the New Testament, basically what we're reading is the apostles, and especially Paul, applying this ethic 
to the church, and even more specifically, applying this to relationships where there is a power differential. And he's applying it uniquely to the person who has power and to the person who doesn't have power in a way that it's the same ethic. We are all to follow Christ's example of servanthood, giving up power to become like a slave, even though he's Lord, right? And it's people in positions of low status are to follow Christ in that way, and people in positions of high status are to follow Christ in that way. But the reality is that for people in positions of low status, women, slaves, prostitutes, children, to do such a thing would actually look somewhat similar to the way they were already expected to act in society. In other words, they would look like they were, in large part, just being submissive because they believed that they were inferior in status and needed to be submissive. But instead, what we'll see is Paul dignifies that option and says, you're not to do that because you are inferior, because you have to, to submit, because there is some God-ordained differentiation in status. He's actually like, all of that's gone. That's all been nullified. Rather, do that as a as a willful choice, an act of worship, an act of obedience to Christ, and see honor and, and glory and equality and dignity in that. But to those who have power, it's going to be incredibly threatening. It's going to come with a lot of resistance, pushback. And we'll see all the way through, basically, Paul's main emphasis almost every time, uh, and the same is true of Peter, is to specifically, powerfully point to how those in positions of power, so men, rulers, masters, patrons in this uh, patronage society, those are the ones who are going to have a really hard time applying the ethics of Christianity. And Paul, even at some points, like in the letter to Philemon, threaten that if they refuse to do so and refuse to give up their status and treat everyone in the society, in the community, like a full equal, even a brother or sister, that they are going to be proving themselves ineffective as actual Christian disciples. So don't have time to get into it here, but you can just see in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul literally quotes Jesus's words directly. When Jesus says, the greatest must become slaves to all, Paul says, I have made myself a slave to all in 1 Corinthians 9, 18. Hmm. He's literally just saying, I'm listening. I'm doing that thing. Look at me as I do it. And in 1 Peter 5, is basically similar to some of the passages we'll look at related to gender. Here the issue is is elders and, and young people, basically old people, young people, and the power differential that's there. And Peter literally explicitly quotes that those in position of power, the old people, are not to lord it over those entrusted to you. So he quotes, Peter here quotes Jesus's command or prohibition to not do as the Gentile leaders do, those with authority out in the world and lord over others. But people in the church are to do the opposite and refuse to do that. So there's very clear, explicit evidence that this was in the apostles' head, and they were actually working this idea out in the New Testament epistles. And beyond that, I would just even say that that term that we looked at, the reason it's translated in this kind of weird English of you shouldn't lord it over anyone, uh, that word is derived from the same word kurios that is the word for lord, which means that there's actually a sense in which every single time Paul refers to Jesus as lord, which he does 54 times in his epistles, that he's actually insinuating that the proper response to that idea of Jesus was the lord of the universe is that therefore, if that true Lord, Lord of everything, saw it fitting that he should lay down all of his power and become the ultimate slave, 
then there isn't a single one of you out there who has a, an excuse or a justification for holding on to any bit of social status that you have other over other people. Yeah. In other words, every single time Paul accredits Jesus with being Lord, he's saying this is the only proper way to respond to that. So this stuff is everywhere. Okay, cool. That was uh, that was five, two and a half, five, whatever. Um, but I did want to say this all this sounds really good. I, I have some more questions and we'll get into this as we go just about like, yeah, but isn't Paul like still kind of leading and controlling doctrine and theology of the different churches that he's been a part of? And isn't he still telling people to like potentially men be the leaders, like lead this thing? And uh, so, and so like, yeah, do it well and do it nicely and be like gracious and humble and all that kind of thing. But, and that's what we would want in any of our pastors, any of our leaders, but like, it still seems like he's telling people to, to do that role, just be like, like really gracious and humble in, in that position and don't lord it over people, which is sort of what I've heard. So I can't wait to like get into this more and, and, uh, and really dig in and start exploring some, some new things here. So, all right, we will uh, see you on the next episode. And if you have any questions, thoughts, want to share your story, email us contact at almost heretical.com and, uh, and share an episode with a friend. That's a great way to support the show and help keep getting the word out and start these conversations. And yeah, so we will see you next time. Peace.